You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly. Your host is Dr. Lawrence Stryker, Assistant Clinical Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine. Pain in the pelvis, gynecologic, gastrointestinal, or something else. With me today is Dr. Frank Tu of the Division of Gynecological Pain and Minimally Invasive Surgery of Evanston Northwestern Healthcare System. Chronic pelvic pain is responsible for 10% of all referrals to a gynecologist, 20% of all hysterectomies, and 40% of all laparoscopies. While chronic pelvic pain is typically evaluated by the gynecologist, it is often not even gynecologic in nature, but due to gastrointestinal, urologic, musculoskeletal, psychological, or neurologic pathology. Today, we are joined by Dr. Tu to discuss the challenges of evaluating chronic pelvic pain. Welcome, Dr. Tu. Oh, hi. How are you, Dr. Trager? Very well, thank you. Now, chronic pelvic pain, of course, is pain below the umbilicus of at least six months' duration that is severe enough to cause functional disability or require treatment. Your chronic pelvic pain clinic is often the end of the line for many patients. So tell me about it. Is there a typical patient? What's the average length of time before someone walks in your door? I think we see patients here at Evanston Northwestern Healthcare as early as a few weeks into their therapy, but some people have had symptoms for decades. You're absolutely right. There can be a spread. I think one of the jobs that we have in educating physicians is just to be aggressive in staying with evaluation and management of these patients. If they're not getting better, I think the important thing is not to give up. There are a lot of resources, not only in women's health, but oftentimes in other fields. Right. Now, I think we would all agree that a detailed history is probably key to pinpointing the diagnosis. But, I mean, come on, realistically, most gynecologists have about 15 or 20 minutes to get a history, maybe do an exam, talk about treatment options. So how do you go about getting a history for the patient with chronic pelvic pain without spending the better part of an afternoon to do so? Well, I think that's a really important question. One we've thought about a lot and one that we've actually kind of discussed with patients. To be fair, 15 minutes is probably generous for many practicing doctors. <laughs> probably. Um, but you're kind to offer that. I think the important thing is uh, to acknowledge the patient how little time you have. If it's a patient that needs more time, a good office staff will really protect you and give you two slots to handle that patient. And I think that's the fair thing to do for the really complicated patient. The Pelvic Pain Society has questionnaires to facilitate this process. Do you think those questionnaires are useful? I think for the practitioner who maybe hasn't seen a lot of patients like this, it can be very helpful. But the most important thing is really just to recognize that our first step is just to make sure we're not missing a serious problem, a life-threatening problem, something mm -hmm. like um, ovarian torsion with a loss of blood flow to the ovary or a serious pelvic infection. Beyond that, I think then the key is really just to acknowledge the patient that we're going to try to get their symptoms under control first. And if at the first visit we don't figure out why they're having the pain, that's okay. But we know that we're on the pathway to finding that problem. Do you think that there's any key questions that you ask the patient about the nature of their pain that often a practitioner doesn't ask that might be helpful? I think there's probably two things that are really helpful. I really try to understand how the pain started. So if it was related to a recent surgery or if it was related to some sort of external trauma. And the other thing I try to ask for is whether or not there is any sort of a visceral or an organ symptom. So is there a bladder component? Are their intestines not working normally? Do they have a lot of pain with intercourse mm -hmm. or during their periods? And I think making that distinction can be very helpful. You know, some studies report that almost 50% of chronic pelvic pain can be traced back to a history of sexual abuse. Do you think that's accurate or do you think that there usually is some identifiable physical component? I think those studies, while they're important to note, 
probably reflect the experience of referral clinics. Mm -hmm. I suspect to those of us who see more normal patients in the community who are working, who are able to juggle their symptoms with their daily life, I suspect we see much lower abuse rates. I'm sure you see the same in your clinic, Mm -hmm. that it's not 50%. I suspect that the fact that we can't find a physical cause in all cases may just be due to the fact that pain is oftentimes more a problem with the nervous system. And you and I both know we don't have great tests for actually looking at nervous system function. So how much of a psychological evaluation do you do? I think the key things that we do, and I should emphasize your earlier question about avoiding spending too much time at one particular interview is very important. At some point in the first couple of visits, I look at mood disorders. Is there suggestion the patient is depressed or anxious? Are they having real problems with sleep? We find that maybe upwards of one half to three quarters of women who have serious chronic pain problems do have trouble sleeping, and that can really make it a sticky problem to fix. Right. But I wonder which came first, the pain or the depression? You know? And sometimes it's hard to know. Exactly. And they'll tell you sometimes they feel like they were in great shape before the symptoms started. And I take them at face value. If they say that, it's probably more of a function of the pain itself. Mm-hmm. Now, moving on to the physical exam, how do you target your physical exam? Is there any particular thing that is helpful in making the diagnosis? I've learned from my mentors and colleagues, probably the best thing that we can do as gynecologists is to really do a targeted exam instead of just sort of trying to push all over the abdomen and pelvis as one big unit, uh, to really use like an index finger and just sort of walk through distinct parts of the abdominal exam, the back exam, the internal pelvic exam, so that we're not just sort of pushing against the whole vagina. We're really thinking, is this the bladder? Is this the rectum? Is this the pelvic floor? That's the thing that the residents, I think, find also to be the most interesting part of working with me is that we really do take that time. It only takes a few minutes, but it's a very targeted, very deliberate exam. What about Carnet's sign? It's an old test that actually is something that makes a lot of sense. If we have patients do sort of a modified crunch or a sit-up, it actually activates the abdominal wall, and it can be helpful in distinguishing if a patient's having muscle pain mainly or if it's something deeper inside the peritoneal cavity. And mm-hmm. every patient can do a nice sit-up and kind of help protect the inside from us <laughs> when we're doing that abdominal exam. One would think. One would hope, right? <laughs> One would hope, right? You know, I assume you utilize ultrasound pretty much routinely. Are there other imaging techniques that you think are particularly useful? I think that if you really have a suspicious exam, you think you've found an unusual mass, particularly if it's something that's perhaps more involving the rectum or maybe involving the bladder and there's some symptoms pointing to those organs, we will actually get a magnetic resonance imaging study, an MRI, to look and see if there is a rare type of endometriosis that's actually growing into adjacent organs. But other than that, unless you've got some other specific signs, I think an ultrasound is usually sufficient to rule out sort of obvious things, ovarian masses, uterine masses. I often utilize an experienced pelvic physical therapist to help treat chronic pelvic pain, but where do you think the role of the pelvic physical therapist is in helping determining the etiology of chronic pelvic pain? Do you think they're better than most physicians if figuring out if it's musculoskeletal or something else? Well, Lauren, most importantly, they have a lot more time than we have to offer right now. And they're very well-trained, particularly in the city of Chicago. You and I are both lucky. We have lots of well-trained therapists right around our areas. I view that role as complimentary. I spend a lot of time on the phone with the therapist. We have actually, I think, six separate trained uh, physical therapists in women's health at Evanston Northwestern Healthcare. And they're all colleagues of mine. I've written papers with them. We'll actually go back and forth about what we think is the primary pain generator. But, you know, I think probably maybe two in five women that we see will offer a evaluation in physical therapy, sometimes just so that they, they have a stronger core so they can do daily activities better, even if they're having pain limitation. A lot of women 
after they've delivered a baby are not in the same shape they were beforehand. And I think we don't spend enough time educating them. that They actually kind of almost have to retrain themselves to get back to that original shape. And that avoids future problems. Now, one of the main causes of chronic pelvic pain, of course, is endometriosis. And if you suspect endometriosis, do you first empirically treat with either a continuous hormonal contraception or GnRH, or do you go right to laparoscopy? I think each patient, of course, has to be looked at on their own merits, Lauren. But, you know, my partner Sangeeta Sanapi and I definitely see a lot of patients who have already been diagnosed with endometriosis by another doctor. If you're in this position where no one's ever done surgery, I think you have to look at how severe the pain is and also look at the patient's fertility issues. Have they been trying to get pregnant for a while? And if they have been, perhaps the pain and the fertility issues are a reason to go to laparoscopy directly. Birth control pills are a great choice, though. I'm less enthusiastic about using GnRH agonists in young women, though, for the reason of the real serious side effects. Even with an estrogen add-back? Well, even so, with the estrogen add-back, so many of these patients come to us, and admittedly, we see more difficult patients having had severe mood disorders. There hasn't been really the same enthusiasm in the patients we see. But you're right. Many patients do very well on add-back. And I think the challenge is, what do you do after six months? They aren't recommended to be used much further than half a year or a year. And most of these are young women who are going to be hopefully you know, living many, many years later than they can take the GnRH agonists. Can you take just a second to discuss pelvic congestion syndrome? When I was a resident, I was told it didn't even exist. You know, I think you and I were trained by the same specialist because I was told the same thing, and I think it's a a very controversial area. We presented this actually at an international meeting on endometriosis in Milan a couple years ago, and we ran into the same thing from our colleagues overseas. Extremely controversial. Some people are convinced it exists. Truth of the matter is, if you think of it in a simple way that in migraine headache, which is another typical pain syndrome, changes in blood flow do seem to be related to symptoms, I'm sure there are some women who have pelvic pain where the pain is related somehow to changes in blood flow in the pelvis. But the problem is we know lots of women who are walking around who are very healthy also have the same signs if you do an MRI on them. And we need more research in this area. I don't think we can tell a given patient that has swollen veins that that's the primary cause of their pain. Right. Thanks to Dr. Tu, who has been our guest. Evaluating chronic pelvic pain is obviously challenging, but not impossible. And making the correct diagnosis is often the key to appropriate treatment. Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly, with your host, Dr. Lawrence Stryker. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, please go to reachmd.com forward slash women's health. Breast cancer. Those are two words your patients don't want to hear and news that you don't want to deliver. Unfortunately for one in eight American women, it's a truth they'll have to face in their lifetime. And the risks are clear. Besides being female, the two major risk factors for developing breast cancer are advancing age and family history. In fact, about 80% of women diagnosed with invasive breast cancer are age 50 and older. And while family history of the disease is an important risk factor, Up to 80% of women diagnosed with breast cancer don't have one. Unfortunately, many women still have misperceptions about who is at risk. They think, I don't have a family history of breast cancer, so I don't need to worry. My mom had breast cancer, but I'm only 43. The good news is that with early detection, we can try to reduce the risk of breast cancer mortality. Through awareness and education, we hope to improve patients' willingness to be screened for breast cancer. To help in this effort, Lilly has created the Strength in Knowing Breast Cancer Awareness Program and website. 
It's designed to educate women about their individual risks and provide a means for them to share this knowledge with others. At strengthinknowing.com, women can hear from professionals as they discuss the importance of knowing the risks of breast cancer, find out about events they can attend in their city, and help spread the message. The resources may also be helpful to you and your practice. There is strength in knowing about the risks of breast cancer. So spread the word today. Visit strengthinknowing.com and tell your patients to visit too. I didn't realize I was at risk until I visited. I told my sister, my mother, and my aunt. This program is sponsored by Eli Lilly and Company. Answers that matter. This ReachMD program is featured on Sermo, a free online community exclusively for physicians. To discuss this program with your colleagues, visit www.sermo.com. That's S-E-R-M-O dot com. When you join, enter ReachMD in the promotion box to receive a $15 Amazon gift card.